One comment I want to make from last week's sermon, and I failed you in something. Um, I, I failed to nuance it uh, enough, so I'm not going to re-preach it, so don't, don't be afraid. But I know that there are some of you, and, and I am numbered among you, that you, when you hear a sermon like that, you, you feel like you've got to take on the totality of it. You've got to get the newsletters for all nine or ten of these folks. You've got to somehow build relationships with all nine or ten of these folks who don't live in your neighborhood. And somehow, some way, you've got to pray and add to what you're already doing. So, so I, I want to suggest to you that that letter was written to the church, not just, not just a bunch of sliced up individuals. And so one of the things that we want to do that will actually help accomplish that is every single week, just as Jonathan did this morning, we will pray for one of the people that we support through Faith Promise and even some other people who are doing things locally so that we, we as a body, at minimum, are doing that weekly together. There will also be some things going forward that will be included in the small groups. Some of the small groups may break up uh, some of the missionaries and kind of try to keep up with them. And so there'll be a way in which our church, we are doing this together. I recognize that there is no possible way that you in and by yourself can do all that. And I don't want you to bear that. And that's an important distinction for you to make as you listen to any sermon. Um, there are only a, a few sermons that are directed really specifically solely to you as an individual. Many of the things that we are called to do from an obedience standpoint has to do more with the communal aspect of that. And my hope is that if you're Christians, you're praying folk already. And that you wouldn't be adding anything to what you're currently doing. You would just be a, a little bit more intentional and mindful toward our missionaries uh, on, on, on a regular basis. But we want to help you do that. And we're in this together. So don't bear the whole weight of that by yourselves. And I apologize for not nuancing it enough uh, so that you knew that. So if you walked out of here discouraged by that. Um, so that being said, this morning uh, we are starting a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We'll do Mark chapters 14, 15, and 16. I hope that you've downloaded the, the devotional. Uh, if not, you need to go look at it because we're not going to do Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. I don't have enough time to explain it all to you why we're not going to do that. Most of you in your Bibles will notice that that portion is bracketed or it's a footnote and it's somewhere else. It's a disputed portion of uh, Scripture and it's disputed uh, enough and, and by scholars enough that it's actually not part of Scripture. Mark ends really with a challenge in verse 8. And so I want to, uh, Robbie Baxter wrote an excursus on that that's in that devotional. So I want to encourage you to read it. If you have questions, uh, if that gives you a little bit of heartburn, if you no longer trust your Bible, come talk to us because that's not, intent, that's not to be the case. And even your own Bible kind of admits this probably shouldn't be here. And so um, it's something that got added over time, and there's a reason that it did get added. Uh, and so um, anyway, so we're not going to deal with it. And if you're wondering, what does it say? Well, it is the key passage that our brothers and sisters in Appalachia used to handle snakes. So if you guys want to start handling snakes, I'll preach it, and we'll have a snake handling service. I'll get fired, and the church will be sanctioned, but... Right? So that's one of the reasons I'm not going to do it. So I don't want you handling snakes, okay? Um, or thinking that you can. All right. So with that being said, we are focusing our time. It's such an interesting thing to me that during springtime, when all is seeming to come to life and everything is beautiful and the weather is beautiful and we're starting to come to life, 
We focus on the march to death for Christ. Now, granted, we know he's going to rise all right, on Easter morn. We know that he will be risen indeed. But over the weeks leading up to that, we have to deal with um, we, we have to deal with the darkness and the betrayal and the death of Christ. And so these are some heavy Sundays coming for us. Um, and, and, it, and they're weighty. And, and this first one has a weight to it as well, even though there's a, there, there's a beauty to the story of the anointing at Bethany that I, I hope will be encouraging to us, but there's things sandwiched around it that are very dark indeed. Um, and so as, as we look at Mark chapter uh, 14, verses one through 11 this morning, the thing I want you to walk away with is this. Here's the key truth, that our worship and watchfulness our trust of the sovereign faithfulness of God and our value, I'm sorry, I messed that up. Zach, there is a ringing in this thing. Can you guys hear that? It's it's driving me bananas. Maybe it's just in my head. (laughs) Carry on. Our worship and watchfulness reflects our trust of the sovereign faithfulness of God and our value of the person and work of Christ. Let me read that again. Our worship and our watchfulness reflects our trust of the sovereign faithfulness of God and our value of the person and work of Christ. Now, I may have asked you all this question before, but it's a question worth coming back to because it's, 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 we have to constantly be asked this question, but what most influences or shapes your worship of God through Christ and the Spirit? What is it that most influences and shapes your worship? Is it, is it tradition? If you were to go somewhere and they didn't do something in the order that you understood it to be, could you not worship? Even though it may all be true, but it was out of liturgical order for you, would you be thrown off? Or if, if a song was sung in a different key or a different cadence or a different tempo, right? are, are you still able to appreciate its truth and its value recognizing that our feelings are not what should shape and dictate our worship. Are you cognizant of that how you spend the rest of your week outside of the Lord's Day Sabbath has an impact on what you come in here and are able to get out of our time together? Right? Is fear maybe shaping and affecting your worship? Is anger, is is uh, just um, maybe you, you just, you don't like the time of day. Maybe it's the day. I don't know. But what is it that is most affecting and shaping how you are able to worship the Lord your God? Because what should most shape our worship is what Christ has done for us, right? You do get <clears throat> that as as not yet perfected people, that what we are doing here this morning and every church across America um, and every church across the world, it is imperfect. You, you, You do understand that nowhere in this world is there a perfect worship service, thus the necessity for Christ to return, make all things new so that we could then commence with the perfect eternal worship service. So we're all looking through a glass glass half darkly. We're all trying the best we can, right? That's why there is no no set liturgy anywhere in Scripture. You can't find one. I wish there was one. It would end a lot of the worship war. But there's not one. 
And we're all doing the best we can to try to communicate this truth that God loves us in and through the death and resurrection, ascension and return of Christ. And so, so how might we do a better job of humbly recognizing the, the imperfections of all of this? So that we could, we could get more the, the meat and the marrow of what is, what is true of every worship service, no matter how imperfect, which is that God is present with his people. Right? How good is it that God says, listen, I know you guys are going to sing out of tune. I know the sound system's going to not sound like it's supposed to. I know that, I know that you, you, you're not going to, everything's not going to land on time. I know that Cameron's going to run over. We just know that, right? I know that, that, that this is the way it's going to go, that you all in your imperfections, you're going to bring in baggage. You're not going to want to sing. You're not going to want to listen. You're not going to, I get that, and yet I am still with you. We'll see in Gethsemane when he says to him, you couldn't even stay awake for one hour. Does he not die for those who could not stay awake for even one hour? And so let us have this season shape us in a way that hopefully renews us in our worship. That the imperfections of those involved and the imperfections of the event itself don't dictate, but the finished work and person of Jesus Christ is the thing that dictates. Amen? So, as we come upon Mark, Mark, if you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, it, it is um, the shortest of the Gospels, and it's the one that's kind of the most action-packed, but when it hits the Passion of the Christ, the last few days of Jesus, it slows down considerably and gets to be much more detailed than the rest of the Gospel itself. Mark also has a feature that we're going to see in this, and other Gospel writers use this as well. In fact, it's a biblical feature. It's called the sandwich. You know what a sandwich is? Uh, well, you got two pieces of bread and the meat's in the middle. And so here we're going to see that there are two stories outside of the actual anointing at Bethany that are there to actually highlight and emphasize the power of the story of the woman who anoints Jesus at Bethany. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind because they're being set in opposition to one another. And one of the things that Mark loves to highlight is those who think they are insiders find out, in fact, no, they are outsiders. And those that the world deems outsiders, well, it turns out that they are, in fact, insiders. And that's a good caution to us because there are those of us who sometimes make claims about being insiders when there's no fruit on the tree or the fruit is in opposition to what it is that we say that we are. That's just a warning. That's not to beat you up. That's to caution you. And there are those of you who think you have sinned so much. And you've done so much and you've had so many bad ideas and you've failed so much that the Lord could never, ever, ever love you. Again, I remind you, they couldn't, he just asked them to stay awake for one hour. They couldn't do it. And he's going to tell Peter, who is full of bravado, that he's going to deny him. So if he loves them, he can love you. And he does love you. And so I don't want us to carry the weight of that insider-outsider idea when Mark and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is turning all that upside down. Now that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because we don't get to decide who's in and who's out. We don't get to decide the quality of the person who's in and the quality of the person who's out. We don't get to pick. 
And that makes us really uncomfortable. Because we like rules and regulations. We like birds of a feather. We like monotype things, even though we pay lip service to diversity. We're not exactly comfortable with it because come, with diversity comes a diversity of ideas and styles and liturgies and other things. And that makes us really uncomfortable. Well, Jesus, as I have seen, and, and as this passage will show, he is not at all concerned with our comfort. And he doesn't seem at all to be concerned with some of the rules that we've created. And we'll see that here in just a moment. So if you would, turn to the text, and let's see, uh, first and foremost, the religious leader's hatred of Christ and the sovereignty of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, isn't this interesting that it's the religious leaders who want him dead? Now, why do they want Jesus dead? Well, they were looking for a Messiah like, like everyone else who was Jewish, but they just didn't like what he had to say. They didn't like the way in which he talked about his Messiahship. They wanted a, 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 a king with a sword in his fist because they had suffered. If you remember by now, they've been suffering for hundreds of years under oppression of varying kinds ever since the end of the book of Malachi. It's been terrible for the people of God. And so they want a fast solution. Does this sound familiar to any of you? How many of us want God and Jesus to be different than he is and to work faster than he does and to do more of what we would like for him to do? I warn you, this is where it can lead you. That you will jettison at some point the very Christ himself as they do. And so they and, and are not worried about what God is going to do in response to their stealth and murder. They're lying. And, and again, what commandments are we breaking here? How many? Does the ends justify the means in Judaism? It doesn't. So they're willing to forsake and roll the dice so that they can get what they want. And notice they're far more concerned with what the people will do. Now, why are they concerned with this? Well, the Passover, which was a celebration of the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt, uh, and, and it's also a celebration of the coming Messiah. And so uh, Jerusalem would draw tens of thousands of people into the city, uh, all coming to celebrate the Passover and to slaughter lambs and to make atonement and do all these things. And so they were concerned that, you know, Jesus has gotten some traction here and some people have listened to this guy. We go killing him in public and you could cause a riot. Well, why would a riot be a problem in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was ruled by Rome. And Rome didn't like it when the people got all wound up and started causing problems. And so they, uh, they would have suppressed this riot with extreme prejudice. And they would have not have distinguished, they would have punished the religious leaders first for causing the riot. And so they're much more concerned with what Rome, the governing body, thinks than what God thinks. Does this sound familiar to you at all? 
That we are much more concerned with political solutions. We're much more concerned with what, what can someone who doesn't look like this Jesus, meek and mild, getting himself killed, but instead someone who can make something happen. We need something now. We're impatient people, just as they are. But what they don't get is that they are an instrument in God's hand. Do you know when Jesus dies? When does he get crucified? Right in the middle of the Passover, with everybody there to see it. And that, that's not the way they wanted it to go, you see. But it was God's will that it would happen then. And it was God's will as to how it would all go down. So even their evil, that which they mean for evil, God is going to take and use for his ultimate redemptive good. Now this ties us back into the series from Daniel, right? So, so let me ask you just real quick, did the election solve all your anxieties? No, there's more to come, right? Because there'll be another election, right? Then there's a series of elections. There's the two years and then, the, and then there'll be more on and on. And so is, is any of you... Uh, have headlines that don't include something political every single day. If you know that news feed, send it to me. I'd like to see it. Uh, it's probably just comedy. Um, but, but, you know, the thing is, is the, the anxiety didn't stop, right? We thought, we, all, so many people were just, I just want to get through the election. And we did, and we're still here, right? And so what matters most? That God is still sovereign, that God's promise to Daniel is also the promise to us in Christ, the ancient of days, who will redeem his people. And though there will be a time and a times and a times and a half, God's people will be delivered and they will be with him eternally. Amen? And we need to remember that because that, that has not yet come to pass and there's a lot that goes on. I was talking with the deacons this morning. We had a deacons meeting and we were just talking about church history. It's amazing when you look at church history how the people of God have endured. If you were a Protestant in France in the 16th and 17th century, you, if we doing this right now, they would slaughter us. Not come in and say, hey guys, uh, you don't need to be doing that. Yeah. No, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, a bunch of Huguenots lost their lives violently, not just simply, but being thrown out of buildings so they would bust open on the concrete below. Not concrete, but the stones below. Think about if you were a Puritan in England when persecution hit. There's a horrible story, and there's the name Cameron's involved in the story, and there's a guy who's in jail, and he's in jail because he had been worshiping the Protestant way, and a soldier brings in this bag, and he drops it at his feet, and he says, what do you think is in this bag? He said, it is the head and the hands of my son. May I kiss them one last time. That's just for worshiping the wrong way. We've done this for a long time. And you may think, man, those guys are barbaric. But you got to remember that was all that. Anybody watch Poldark or all, British people? Are supposed to, it's supposed to be the seat of culture, as was France. I mean, it wasn't just, just people who didn't know anybody. These are people, this is just, the, these ideas had legs and they came to power. Because gospel is, in fact, a dangerous thing. We don't seem to think so, but periodically governments figure out that it is. China, 1940, uh, the USSR, 
Um, on and on and on again, the church is being persecuted all over the world. We will not be without stain someday. And so it's very important for us to remember that God is sovereign. And no matter what any government chooses to do, there will always be a remnant. The word of the Lord cannot be thwarted. And, and God will finish what he started. Right? So that begins the passion story is that there is this plot against Jesus himself. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. He says, the overruling providence of God completely de defeated this politic design. The betrayal of our Lord took place at an earlier time than the chief priests had expected. The, the death of our Lord took place on the very day when Jerusalem was most full of people and the Passover feast was at its height. In every way, the counsel of these wicked men was turned to foolishness. They thought they were going to put an end forever to Christ's spiritual kingdom and in reality, they were helping to establish it. Amen? So how does the sovereignty of God affect your view of current events and of the future? This is something we constantly have to come back to because things are, seem to be changing all the time, right? I mean, we need to periodically ask, God, where, how, how again can I understand your sovereignty in this? And there's things that we can't explain. There's things that are just inexplicable to us as God's people, right? I think about even just Chris Fogel's song, who's trying to plant this church in the least church county in Georgia. Why would he get, why would he get struck with his mother dying, an operable brain tumor for his mother-in-law? A wife has gestational diabetes. God, you are sovereign. Why give him all that at once? Which is just a question that evidences my complete and utter lack of wisdom and faith. Still a good question, and God doesn't mind the question. It has to be put in the right category. And so, as we have seen, even with Chris, I've talked to him, Jonathan's talked to him, he is expressing a, a grace that will serve him as a pastor far greater than anything we could have concocted for him, any seminary class we could have come up with. This will shape him in a profound way as a shepherd, and it will not destroy him. Amen? And it won't destroy you either. Turn back to the text and let's see the middle portion, the, the meat of the sandwich. This is where the woman known worldwide for risky and costly worship comes in. And while he being Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So we have this opposition being set up. You have the religious leaders who want to kill Jesus. They know the scriptures. And yet they don't want this Messiah at all. 
They want their own Messiah that they can control and is in their own image and will do what they want him to do. And yet this woman risked everything by coming into an event that is mostly male. And Simon the leper, um, is, is he would have been cured of leprosy because if he was currently leprous, it would have been against the law for Jesus to be there. So this man had probably been healed at some point in Jesus' ministry. And yet she takes a great risk in coming into this event to anoint her Savior with this costly jar of nard. Now, 300 denarii is about a year's worth of wages. So it's in all likelihood that this was some sort of family heirloom for her because it's not likely that she could have earned that kind of money to pay for it. If she did, it's supernatural in some sense. But if it was an heirloom, that means it would have been something very uh, of great importance and meaning to her. And what she's expressing is that Jesus is of greater meaning. And what Christ has done for her is of greater worth than this bottle of expensive perfume. Now, what's interesting is who is it that is supposed to be allowed to anoint someone? A woman? No. Priest or a prophet? So here we have a woman who... Uh, we don't know much about her at all. In John's gospel, if the story is the same, it's mentioned as Mary. Um, but in this story, it doesn't give us that detail. So if we're just reading this, we don't really know who she is and why she's there, what, what it was that Jesus did to, for her to be transformed to this kind of worship in spirit and truth. And yet she is not a prophet. She is not a priest. In fact, what she did could get her, uh, uh, get her beaten and arrested. And yet she's willing to risk because she knows at some level that the moments now are few with her Savior in this way. She gets that he is going to die. Now, is she anointing him as king? Well, no, Christ makes it clear she's anointing me for burial, but you got to remember he is the king who will descend and ascend to the throne that is set up for him by God the Father. So she's and essentially preparing him for burial. And, and so um, it, it, it's all part of Christ unfolding and getting them to understand, I am going to die for you and be raised again. You will not have an opportunity to anoint me closer to the time. So the hour is drawing nigh. Now notice the disciples, they grumble and say, this could have been used for the poor, as if their main concern was the poor. Notice what Jesus does. He quotes to them Deuteronomy 15, 11 in particular, but the fuller context of Deuteronomy 15 is that within the community, you should have no poor among you, period, which is what we see in the book of Acts when everybody takes care of everyone. But the poor you will have with you always, meaning that there is life in a fallen world and you will always have opportunity to serve and care for others. Notice what Jesus does. He says, you can do that at any time. You can, you can engage the poor anytime you want to. And yet you're concerned about it now, all of a sudden. Now to be fair to the disciples, there is in uh, the Passover celebration a period in which there is almsgiving, which is set aside for the poor. So it's not like they were completely out of bounds, but Christ knew their heart. They were invoking uh, something that was tradition when Christ says, no, your concern for the poor should be always, always, not just now. 
And so he rebukes them. They scold her. It's strong in, in the Greek. It is a, it's, a, it's really a, a dressing down. Think about that. You're a woman who's come into a situation that is, that is risky for you. And you are attacked by the very disciples of Christ himself. And yet he steps between you and them and says, hold on a second. What she has done is a beautiful thing. What you're doing is not. So notice how he is evidencing, even in this moment, his intercessory work. He intercedes on her behalf and declares what she has done as right. And he does the same for us, doesn't he? How often does, uh, is, there, is there not some sort of attack upon your very soul, whether it is from within? How often is the narrative, you, you, saying that you are worthless, you saying that you are not good, and yet Christ steps in between you and that voice and says, no, you are mine. And know that he continues, even now as we gather together, he is interceding for us. That is the work that he continues on the throne. What a beautiful picture that as Satan comes before the throne and says, no, no, Cameron is not He's not worthy to be pastor. He's not, he, he doesn't deserve any of this. He doesn't deserve Susan. Okay, maybe not. But he whispers low all the time, and yet Jesus says, see, here's the problem, Satan. You are judging based on the works of the man instead of the work of the greatest man. I have imputed my righteousness to him. Just as the woman poured that expensive ointment upon me, I have shed my blood on him. And you, and we are covered in the righteousness of Christ so that what is seen is not our pitiful failed work, but the finished work of Christ, which sets us free not to sin, by the way, but sets us free to actually worship in spirit and truth and to be free to do the things for which he has gifted us, right? And each of us has been given a gift individually that we all use collectively together. This, back to my earlier point about the prayer stuff. It is arrogant, passive-aggressively, for us to think that we as an individual can do it all. Did you hear what I just said? It is arrogant, even if it's passive-aggressive, for you to think that you in and of yourself singularly can do it all and that you have no need of the foot or the hand or the armpit or the belly button or the rest of the body. And we do ourselves a disservice when we don't recognize how we are supposed to be working together and, and carrying these things out together as a community. Because there are not enough hours in the day for any of you to accomplish most of this. So I want you to be free of that burden. I don't want you to be free of the necessity to bear good fruit. I don't want you to be free of the necessity to worship in spirit and truth. I don't want you to be free of the basic means of grace and acts of devotion. But what I want you to be free from and what Christ wants you to be free from is the arrogance of thinking you can do it all by yourself. We are called together. 
And so Jesus intercedes for her, and he even goes on to say that whenever the gospel is preached of the whole world, he, so he's invoking the Abrahamic covenant, in essence. This woman, she will be mentioned. So she is an insider. She is worthy of the love of Christ. And the ones who thought they were insiders, who thought they understood, were actually outsiders. So, David Garland says this about this passage. He says, The woman's extravagant devotion exhorts devotion and love for Christ. Her gesture displays the proper, proper personal devotion of the disciples toward Jesus, and he comes to her defense. The text prompts us to ask, how much is too much devotion to Christ? Now, some of you are going to hear that as a very heavy question. But the answer to the question is really in reference to how you understand the value of Christ himself. So is, is not all of life sacred? There is no true sacred secular divide. The kingdom is here. Christ reigns now. And this is his world. Although, as Hebrews 2 says, he reigns and it is under his feet, but it doesn't quite look like it yet. There's a now and not yet reality. And so we get to worship in spirit and truth because we know there, there is no battle. It ended at the cross and with the resurrection. You understand, this is not up for grabs. And we need to live like people understand this is not up for grabs. They're not, Satan's not going to come back like the patriots did who were part of the minions of Satan. He's just not. The battle has been won. So how have we been set free to love one another, to engage culture, to do the things that we've been given in all of the different spheres where we are and to support one another in so doing? How do we as family live this out? And, and evidence through our worship and our living out of that, which is also worship, the value of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's turn back to the text and see the final piece where Mark's going to again turn to one who thought they were an insider. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now Mark makes sure that we understand that Judas, he was one of the 12. He was as inside as you can possibly get. And yet, he premeditatedly, willfully sought an opportunity to destroy Jesus. Now, if you're kind of wicked like me and you know enough of the Bible, you go, hold on a second. Isn't there another passage where it talks about Satan comes into Judas and really is that... Is it really willful? It is both and. It is what we open ourselves up to. It is what we, what we, when we are not watchful over our own souls and lives, leave ourselves open to, which is either passive or active betrayal of Christ. Such that we even at some time may come to seek 
willfully opportunity to betray him. That should be sobering to us. And this is why Mark puts all this together for us. It's so that we see that you can know the whole of the Old Testament and still get it wrong. You can know the whole of the story of Jesus and you can still get it wrong. And yet, you, you have an opportunity through watchfulness and trust in the sovereignty of God and in the value of the person and work of Christ to be redeemed. That is not the end of the story for you. But we must be warned. We must be warned. Listen to what James R. Edwards says of this. He says, the note that Judas was one of the 12 warns Mark's readers that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. You coming to church every Sunday doesn't guarantee faithfulness. You being in 14, 15 different Bible studies does not guarantee your faithfulness. You reading through the Bible in 30 days or 30 minutes or 30 seconds does not guarantee your faithfulness. It doesn't. What guarantees your faithfulness is the applied person and work of Christ to you, the finished work of Christ, not what you do. What we do should come as an overflow of what Christ has done. Amen? He has empowered us to be able to do those faithful things. So the works that we are called to do do not grant God's love to us, but what it does is transform us so that we better understand the fullness of God's love for us. Do you understand the difference? Anytime it seems that anybody suggests that we might have to actually do something, people throw the flag of legalism. Well, that's only true if what's being said is that that is your works are salvific that your works actually increase God's love for you. It is wholly out of court and wrong to throw the flag of legalism when you're told you ought to do something if the intent is to help you to grow in your understanding of the fullness of the person and work of Christ. It is not God who is blind to what's going on. It is us. And it is we who need to engage in the means of grace and the works of the Father so that our faith grows. He goes on to say, indeed, greater intimacy with Jesus requires greater watchfulness. Keep a close watch on your lives. So what are some ways in which you have struggled since you've become a Christian? Right? Anybody in here would confess and say, nah, since I've become a Christian, man, life has just been so easy. I don't even know why I don't just, I don't know why the people don't make movies and write books about me. Right? For, some, for those of us who, who become Christians, you've been a Christian for a while, you understand that actually in some ways it gets harder. And, it, and, and there are times when it, you feel it stronger, where the, 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 the weight of the world, you no longer can hide behind your cynicism. I'm an amazing cynic. I am very gifted at critique and sarcasm and not doing anything. But standing above the fray and being long on diagnosis and short on cure. And all that's apart from Christ. And that was a safe place for me to be as a radical anti-theist because I never, ever had to get dirty. I could always keep it at arm's length. When I became a Christian, no longer could I be long on diagnosis and short on cure. No longer could I stand above the fray. I had to step into the mix where Jesus stepped into and calls us all 
to come and to die, to lay down our lives and take up our crosses and follow him. So what has helped you most to keep a close watch on your heart and to grow in faithfulness? What has most served you to remind you of the value of the person and work of Christ? And my hope is that you could say somewhere along the way that worship plays, and I mean corporate worship on a weekly basis, plays some part in that. Right? It may not be the style you like. I may not be the person you like. These chairs may not be the most comfortable. This parquet floor may cause you to want to dance, but you can't. Uh, <laughs> but what you cannot say is that even before I ever get up here, that through the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, that you have not yet heard the gospel. You can't say it. And so you ought to be able to get something out of it because we do lift Christ up as feebly as we can, as broken as we are, and as fallen as we continue to wrestle with. So what are the three things that we learn from this text? One, some are gonna hate Jesus and they're gonna seek to destroy him and his people only to serve the sovereign purposes of God. That's really important for us to remember. Two, we reflect our value of the person and work of Christ in our worship. You do. You may say you're reflecting what you think about what I'm doing. No, you're not. You're reflecting the value of the person and work of Christ. Three, we must keep a close watch on our hearts lest we too willfully betray Christ. It is not something that we can be inactive about. And so thus the call uh, to to engage the means of grace. And we want to help as much as we possibly can. We're not just putting it off on you. And one of the ways in which the means of grace, and this is a, a beautiful Sunday on which for us to do this, is that the broken body and shed blood of Christ reminds us that he has done for us what the woman did for him. That we have been anointed in a particular way, uh, by, by the righteousness of Christ, we, we have been prepared for death. You understand? Just as he was prepared for burial, the death and the risenness of Christ prepares us for death because why? Death has been defeated. It can have no hold on us. Remember 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's grand exposition of the resurrection. And so we, on a regular basis, have the opportunity to see tangibly and to taste and see that God is good, that, that he, his body was broken for us. So all of those voices that say to you, no, you are an outsider. You should be able to look to the broken bread and see, no, in fact, because of what Christ has done, I am an insider forgiven and the totality of God's wrath toward all of my sin satisfied.